Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to me, it's year three of Gender Z. Listen to us while we make a fuss about content with energy. Let's have a hard conversation on Gender Z. Welcome to Gender Z, I'm Bren Bartol. And I'm Michelle Leong. And today we're continuing our series where we read stuff that I have written. Uh... Yeah, apparently I just write a lot of queer stuff for school. Hey, it's okay, you know? I'm I'm an expert. You know, I it's something I know I'm good at, that I know I know a lot about. <laughs> Wait, we need to do one of, like, the NHD. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I can pull that out like a split. I got you. All right, so what we're going to read today is my IA. If you don't know what an IA is, it's called an internal assessment. It's part of the IB program, um, which is kind of like AP, but different. Uh, yeah. And typically when you write an IA, you have to like, especially for like your science classes and your math classes, you have to do an experiment, collect data, come to conclusions. But I didn't actually take the IB test. So while I had to write an IA, it didn't have to be about that. It just had to be about somebody who contributed to math or science. And, like, I think the prompt, too, was, like, someone from a marginalized group, someone who isn't a straight white male who's getting all the attention. You know, you know. I think they've gotten enough attention. and Exactly. I mean, I'm in a class with, like, junior and sophomore boys. Oh, yeah. And uh, let me tell you, the straight white male privilege is strong, and there's there's some good douches in there. (laughs) I um I actually told two of my classmates off the other day because they were fetishizing Asian women. And I, I I went, hey guys, can you stop fetishizing Asian women? Just for this period, maybe. And then they got all whispery and scared. And I was like, it's so obvious you're talking about me. It is so obvious you're talking about me. Do you think, oh my gosh. And they were like, we're not talking about you. Nothing happened. What are you talking about? I'm like, I'm not that dumb. <laughs> I hate it when they do that. Like, exactly. we know. The whole class knows. Everyone and also, knows. like, why do you think that I care that you're talking about me? Like, talk behind my, like, talk bad about me all I want. I'm right. No, and it's, it's like, just super annoying, you know, when they yeah. do that. You're like, okay, I hear you. I don't care. <laughs> exactly. They were not quiet. Anyway. So, for my IA, I picked um, Dr. Alan L. Hart, which is the first known and documented trans man in the U.S. So, it's entitled, Dr. Alan L. Hart, an unintentional pioneer is the first trans doctor in the U.S. By me. Word count, 2,268. And then, in green pen, my teacher wrote, fantastic paper brand, underneath. (laughs) I started it off with a quote from a wonderful trans activist, Jazz Jennings. Love her. Check her out if you haven't. She's written a book. She's at Harvard. She's real smart. Um, <laughs> and the quote is, if someone's okay with being the transgender girl, that's fine, but that's not me. And the, the idea of that is like being the quote unquote trans kid, um, you know, to benefit other people just because they are trans. I'm like, I think a lot of people are like that. We're like, no, we're not your token trans person. 
let's get started. <laughs> Dr. Alan L. Hart was never the quote-unquote transgender boy, nor did he want to be. He knew he was not a commodity or something to be vilified. He was simply him, and he did what he was good at, regardless of his transness. Born in 1819, not 1819, 1890. I was like, whoa. <laughs> Very different times. Um, Dr. Alan L. Hart was the first successful medical transitioner of the United States. A radiologist and author, Hart was a crucial member of queer history and medical and the medical history of tuberculosis. And that's another thing. He was not just a doctor. He like was crucial in the fight against tuberculosis. We stand. I know. Our first, our first subheading. The first transgender doctor. <laughs> Hart was born in 1890 and assigned female at birth. His father passed away when he was two and his mother remarried, moving the family to Oregon, where his grandpa- grandparents lived. Hart did not like his stepfather <laughs> and would often call himself, quote, the only man of the house. He really didn't like his stepdad. <laughs> the family lived with Hart grandparents on the farm, where the boy had many fond memories with his grandfather. He liked sports like tennis. This was seen as odd, but not completely out of the ordinary. So it was never touched on and his parents did not try and dissuade him of it because tennis was like a boy sport. However, Hart was not quite a boy yet, at least not physically. It was. It is no secret that in modern times, the trans community is constantly ridiculed and attacked and it was incredibly worse back then. Hart did not come out of a child or even identify as trans because to be such a thing was unheard of. He knew he did not feel particularly feminine and he identified with aspects of masculinity, but he never named it. I have three three footnotes with my with my sources. I love footnotes; they're so fun. Um, <laughs> I can't I can't like organize them properly. It's it's like not good. <laughs> I can't do a lot of footnotes. If it's like like a few one to one to four, okay, I got you. Anything more than that? No. <laughs> in 1918 or in 1908, my goodness, Bren, read them correctly. In 1908. Hart started attending Albany College, which is now Lewis and Clark College in Oregon, pursuing medicine. In his junior year, he transferred to Stanford University because he was a smarty boy um, <laughs> and graduated from both colleges in 1912. Something important to note is Hart was incredibly smart. He may have even be considered, been considered a genius. He published many writings in college and was on the debate team. As he attended college before his transition and coming out, he faced a different type of discrimination. Misogyny. <laughs> As seen as a woman in a prestigious college institution, particularly in the field, the medical field with the purpose to become a doctor, his journey was not easy. Throughout his first four years in college, Hart was in a secret relationship with his roommate, a woman named Eva Cushman, who followed him to Stanford. Both kept their relationship secret because at the time they could be considered a lesbian couple, another intensely hidden secret for fear of oppression or violence towards them. There is much speculation of what sexual orientation Hart was, but he was always a man and only pursued women. Um... It is fair to say he was straight. People just did not want to see him that way. You can be trans and straight. It exists. <laughs> Gender identity and sexuality are not the same thing. <laughs> we still need to talk about that. We do. We need to reach out to your friend. We'll do that. Yeah, because like, like she wanted to do it. And like, if she still wants to, I want to want to let her do it yeah. anyway next <laughs> next um <laughs> despite his success in academics Hart was not happy with himself he wanted to become in quotes a more conventional woman but he also did not want to give up his masculinity this turmoil added on to the stress of being perceived as a woman in the 1910s is a highly 
in a highly masculine field, and the pressure of a secret relationship was overwhelming. Hart considered suicide seriously many times. This is what happens when people are not safe and do not feel safe. 1910s, baby. So glad I don't live in the 1910s. <laughs> I love the people who are like, I was born in the wrong era. And I'm like, no, you just like the aesthetic. I've never been, I was born in the wrong era. I'm very happy to be living in the year that I'm living. Are there still problems? Absolutely. If I went back in time, would there be even more problems? Yes. <laughs> no, honestly, though, because people are like, oh, vintage and like all that stuff. And I'm like, no. I know. It's, I'm like, oh my gosh. No, you weren't born in the wrong era. You so weren't. All right. <laughs> in 1913, Hart started med school at the University of Oregon Medical School. He was the only, quote, woman in his class and kept himself busy even in the summer. In the summer of 1916, he attended summer school at Stanford School of Medicine. He graduated top of his class with honors in 1917 with, and spent a few months working at the Amy Barton Dispensary in Philadelphia. In 1918, Hart approached Dr. J. Allen Gilbert. It's a fun name. J. Allen Gilbert. <laughs> That's a white man right there. You can just tell by the name. Um, with the, at the, Oregon, the University of Oregon Medical School, Gilbert was a doctor and a psychologist, and Hart approached him originally about his phobia at the sound of, sh- of a shotgun firing. Eventually, their discussions moved to gender, and Hart first attempted to get Gilbert to turn him into a more conventional woman psych- psychologically. But as his treatment continued... Hart found he did not actually want to be more of a woman. He was repulsed by the idea of losing his masculinity and his want to be a man. Soon after, Hart realized he was a man, and Gilbert agreed to perform a hysterectomy on him. Hart underwent the procedure, marking the first successful hysterectomy and transition in the country. He changed his name to his late father's, Alan L. Hart's, and started to live his life as the man he was. Now, the first successful hysterectomy, like, hysterectomies are big. Like, they're significant. You're taking out an organ of your body. Like... A lot can go wrong, and at that time, it often did. <laughs> I mean, just look, we didn't even know about germ culture yet. That's why the Spanish influenza killed so many people, because everybody was just stacked in cots next to each other. Later in Gilbert's career, he published a set of writings entitled Homosexuality and Its Treatment, focusing on his time with Hart. Hart was only ever referred to as H. Shortly before his medical transition, Hart met Inez Stark, and they courted and married. Stark left Hart in in 1923 and officially divorced him in 1925 for reasons unknown. I don't know why I put for reasons unknown. Now that I'm reading this out loud, that's not (laughs) relevant. Okay. Um, (laughs) Okay. While his first marriage was not successful, his second one was. Hart met Edna Ruddick a social worker with an expertise in tuberculosis. They married shortly after his divorce and stayed married until their deaths. Hart was a doctor as of his 1917 graduation. He focused on x-rays and tuberculosis, often being the most experienced doctor in the subject in several states in the area. For a good 15 years, Hart moved around from hospitals and positions in seven states, working as the leading tuberculosis consultant and public health director in several states. In the 1940s, when the testosterone hormones were introduced, Hart started started taking the hormone through hormone therapy, more commonly known today as HRT or hormone replacement therapy. Um, I didn't put this in here because I, I don't know, I didn't feel like it wasn't relevant. Um, But if you're taking testosterone, like trans women don't call estrogen E. I have never heard that ever, but everyone I know who takes testosterone calls it T. Like that's just a thing. 
we call it tea now but like i've never heard of estrogen referred to as e <laughs> huh that is very interesting yeah so that's just the thing trans community does this furthered his confidence by lowering his voice and allowing him to grow a beard and he started lecturing and speaking at public events about tuberculo- tuberculosis aiding in starting many public fundraisers for those affected in disease research the Hart couple ended up in Connecticut in 1945, where Hart would get his second master's degree, this time from Yale. He went to Yale and Stanford. <laughs> Smart, smarty boy. <laughs> he worked as Connecticut's director of tuberculosis control, hospital care, and rehabilitation for 17 years until his death in 1962 of heart disease. His name's Hart. He died of heart disease. Oh, my God. Oh my gosh. All right. Second section. Tuberculosis. <laughs> Tuberculosis is a disease of the lungs that when untreated can be fatal. It is not prevalent disease in the U.S., but it's still found globally. Caused by the bacteria Mycobacterium tuberculosis, the disease is difficult to diagnose in children, hence why the vaccine, called BCG, is used for young children and infants in countries where tuberculosis is still prevalent. Um... From my research, from what I remember, because I wrote this about a year ago, uh, we don't really use this vaccine in the U.S. Like, there's still treatment for tuberculosis, but it's like it's kind of like how we've like eradicated polio. Um, like, you just don't see it. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's not completely eradicated, but it's it's just not a very common thing. And if yeah. you do get it, we catch it so much faster than we used to. And the important part about X-rays is. They used to, one of the main ways that they used to diagnose it is they would take an X-ray of your chest, um, and it kind of looks like there's fog in your lungs almost. Um, I have oh, yes, here we go. Seen to the right is an X-ray of a chest with pulmonary tuberculosis. You can't see the picture because this is paper, but there's a picture of the fog in the lungs. Um, <laughs> the most common strain. The use of X-rays makes it exceptionally easier to discover. Turn the page. And diagnose tuberculosis, catching it early and keeping people safe. Now, we're on page five. There's like six, I don't know, ten pages of this. All right. <laughs> Let's keep going. Alan L. Hart, tuberculosis, pioneer. <laughs> Before Hart, one-fourth of tuberculosis patients were asymptomatic, leaving a large margin of continued infection without knowledge. They did not have a way to detect the presence of the disease until it was advanced and deadly, and by that point, it was more comfort control that the, of the patient. By that point, it was more comfort control until the patient's death, and rather than actual treatment. Hart and his wife both specialized in tuberculosis in their respective fields. Hart was, with many of his college, colleagues, painfully aware of the deadliness of the disease. During the Great Depression, Hart and his wife moved up to the Seattle area. Let's go. <laughs> okay, Seattle, I swear to God, everything happens. Like, there's exactly. so much stuff that happens in Seattle. Exactly. Oh. Where Hart was out of work and wrote a series of novels that had that all the ma- that all had main characters who were gay or LGBTQ+, in medical fields, pouring his own personal experience into it. Soon after, the Harts moved to Idaho, searching for work, and Hart was able to get a job where hundreds of young men were sent to have their chests and x-rays examined before being enlisted in the armed services of World War One or World War Two, my bad. Because you had to, like, if they're they're gonna send you to war, they want to make sure you're physically able mm-hmm. to be sent to war. This is when Hartbeat was able to notice the importance of X-rays. Through studying X-rays of men's chests, he could clearly see the tuberculosis cells in their lungs, even when they showed no symptoms. 
Shortly after, he was able to apply this to other patients and document that the disease spread through the circulatory system. Hart traveled through rural Idaho, lecturing, screening, and helping those with the disease. Given the ability to screen and catch the disease in its early phases, he was able to effectively quarantine people and stop the spread while treating them. In the 1940s, antibiotics were introduced, cutting down the disease's fatality to 150th of what it was. Hart was widely responsible for the containment and control of the Pacific Northwest and Connecticut's experiences with tuberculosis. On July 1st, 1943, Hart published his findings in a book that was widely renowned and used called These Mysterious Rays, a non-technical discussion of the uses of x-rays and radium, chiefly in medicine. That's a long title, dude. <laughs> it's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. Tuberculosis was a stigmatized disease, especially when little was known about it. I didn't put it in. Why did I now put it in? I like that I'm editing this after I already got a grade. <laughs> Despite it being airborne, it was seen as a sign of dirtiness or poverty. It is speculated that Hart emphasized or empathized with diseases victims and chose that as his primary field of study because of his experience with being discriminated against because of something he couldn't control. Now, here we get into the part that's like where his transness caused him issues, struggles outside the medical field. Hart, as important as the figure he was to pioneering and leading the field against the fight of tuberculosis, had hardships in his life. He worked in so many states because of his transness. He was forced to move almost everywhere he went. Uh, a colleague. He was forced to move because almost everywhere he went, a colleague or classmate of his before his transition would recognize him and more often than not, out him. Hart was featured in several different newspapers across the country and multiple different times in his life because of those who couldn't keep his secret. Um, two examples I put screenshots in. Uh, Dr. Alan Hart said to be organ girl. And then Dr. A. Lucille Hart wore male attire. That was his dead name. Um, one even published an article in the Medical Sentinel Journal entitled Amazing Sex Recovery, claiming that Hart was enslaved, quote unquote, by masculinity. Hart never responded to these breaches of privacy, but never backed down from himself or his identity. He always stayed true to himself. Another way people tried to prove that he was not a real man was to look at his draft card. Hart had entered the draft as in accordance with laws requiring him to, and many speculated the sex marker would be indicative that they were right. But they were thwarted because Hart's draft card said male, as it should have. He was never a shoulder at soldier as he was exempt as a physician. So he never went to war. Hart died in 1962 after living in Connecticut with his wife. His ashes were scattered in Port Angeles, Washington. I've been there. <laughs> I have this, like, tiny stuffed tiger that I'm obsessed with. Um... And I bought it in Port Angeles. <laughs> it's a cute town. <laughs> a portion of his photographs, letters, and documents were burned, as specified in his will. It is reasonable to infer that some of these have had to do with his transness. He left everything to his wife, and when she died, she gave all their assets to leukemia research in honor of Hart's mother, who died from leukemia. Later in 1998, it became and continues to be the Allen L. and Edna Reddick Heart Fund at Oregon Hall Health Sciences Foundations for Leukemia and Other Blood Disorders Research. In 1976, John, Jonathan Katz, an author, published American History, Lesbian and Gay Men in the USA. Katz was able to identify Hart as H in Dr. Gilbert's homosexuality and its treatment, but identified Hart as a lesbian. He stood by his choice for years despite backlash. Edna Ruddick refused to confront him, knowing that her husband would not have cared for it. Katz has, in recent years, rescinded his comments about not respecting Hart's transness and acknowledged being in the wrong. Now personal connection because one of the things with the IA was it was like 
it just can't be something random you have to have a personal connection to it Mm -hmm. so and like everybody was like i i knew one kid who like tracked the mean of how high his dog could jump and like stuff like that um but i didn't have math yeah yeah what was your personal connection what did you do oh i did um the uh rate of cooling for like tea right 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 i remember that yeah because i like chronically drink tea (laughs) tea every day ladies and gents all right personal connection let's go (laughs) as a trans teenager alan hart is extremely important to me i don't get to see success stories in my community often even today i know they exist in history yet i have to go to long lengths to find them i want to learn about those who made my way of life possible Hart is considered the first successful transition in the U.S. People transition all the time today, and I am one of many who, are con- who is considering it. He is a trailblazer, and while being the first is never easy, he never backed down from where he, who he was, and he lived a long, wonderful life with his wife and in a career he loved. I want to do that, too. Success stories are so critical to people of marginalized communities, especially young people. It proves to us that, yes, we have existed, and yes, we will continue to. I cannot express in words how deeply invested I am in this man's story. I cannot express how happy it makes me to read and learn about him. I cannot express how much hope it gives me. If he could thrive in a time where he was seen as an abs- or he was absolutely seen as an abomination to most, I can certainly t- thrive in a time where that is starting to change. I do not need to inspire anyone like Hart. I just need to live my life true to myself and my interests and who I love. Some may say that's inspirational. I call it normal. <laughs> that is truly what Dr. Alan L. Hart is to me, an example of the normal we deserve. Conclusion! (laughs) All in all, Hart never wanted to be seen as a pioneer. He never sought out fame for his achievements. He simply wanted to live an enjoyable life serving people and loving his wife, living as his authentic life, or authentic self. He achieved it. Hart is not well known in history textbooks or school curriculums, despite his massive contributions to a deadly disease that still plagues the world today. Regardless, he is a monumental figure in the world of history and medicine. And then I have my work cited. And that is my IA. Claps. Thank you. Thank you. It's such a well-written IA. Like, it's really, like, cohesive and smooth. Oh, thank you. Yes. I remember. It's funny, too, because the day that the draft was due, I wrote my entire IA draft the day before. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I wrote mine, like, the day before it was due. That's Which impressive. Is not good. But No, it's not. <laughs> but you got it done. Yeah. We got it done. Did you get a good grade? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like horrible. It wasn't like super good either. <laughs> it's kinda Yeah. I think if I had to do the actual IA, it would have been worse because I'm like, I'm a humanities kid. Like, I love science, and I and I really like math, but, like, I've always done really well with writing papers. So, like, I'm like, oh, this is easy. It was, like, mini NHD. Do some research, slap it on a page. <laughs> yeah, I've, I mean, like, the, the IAIA <laughs> with, like, a ton of math in it, it was, like, it's not as bad once you do it. That's, that's nice. But it's the hardest part is to like actually figure out what you're doing. Like, how am I going to do an experiment? But exactly. Yeah. yeah. Writing the research is a lot better. It's a lot more fun too. So. Yeah, I bet. 
Yeah, my brother, when he did his IA, he did one like about microwave links and melting chocolate. I don't know what all of it was, but our house smelled like chocolate for forever because he kept microwaving chocolate. <laughs> I'm like, I support this this experiment. Hey, the food ones are the best, I'm telling you. Like yeah, all that <laughs> You got some tea to spill the tea. You spilled the tea about the tea. No, literally. I'm it's like, there was... No, I made, like, so many cups of tea. I bet, I yeah. <laughs> Did you get to drink... Well, I don't know if you'd want to drink them, because you were seeing how they cooled. I mean, you can still drink them, because they're, like... I don't know. I still drink tea. Like, cold tea, hot tea. I, I would drink tea, as long as it's tea. Tea. <laughs> So you gotta do, yeah. I feel like if it's cooled down, then you're like, okay, we gotta make this iced tea now. Yes, yes, that was my take. Iced yeah, tea. Yeah. Iced tea all the way. <laughs> That's how you got, you didn't drink coffee in junior year. You just drank tea from your experiment. That's how you got your caffeine. <laughs> I did drink coffee, but then I was like, I'm not gonna do it with coffee just because, like, it takes longer to, like, make and yeah. all that kind of stuff. And I was like, you know what? Tea, because that's, like, my go-to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Same. Nowadays, though, I just drink hot water. Like, I don't even put the tea bag in. I'm too lazy. I just drink cups of hot water. <laughs> I'm getting hydrated, guys. It works. <laughs> Hydration. Hydration nation. Hydrate, don't dehydrate. It, it's an important phrase. <laughs> I said that for the first time, I, apparently for the first time around my dad the other day. And he just went, what? <laughs> I was like, hydrate, hydrate don't dehydrate, dad. You gotta hydrate so you don't dehydrate. <laughs> it was just one of those moments where it's like, okay, that's weird. <laughs> I'm like, I didn't make it up. It's so iconic, but yeah. It is, yeah. Well, that is us reacting to my writing again, part three, part four. Who knows? It's a shock. So- I feel like it was. I feel like it was, like, shorter than 2,000 words. Like, it just flowed so well. Oh, thank you. Serving. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, be safe. Be kind. Take care of yourself. Surround yourself with your family and friends. People you love. Yeah. And remember, the tiny space potato believes in you. Find us on Instagram at gen.dir.z. Please reach out if you have any inquiries. Today's episode was brought to you by Bren Bartal and Michelle Leong. Thank you for listening to Gender Z, and we hope you tune in next time.